One of the things that's patently obvious as we look around at the church as it's spread across the United States and around the world is that there are a tremendous variety in forms of worship. There are almost as many forms of worship as there are Christians and as there are churches. It's almost an infinite variety that the, uh, that the shape of Christian worship takes from one church to another. And it's quite evident, as you think of some of the categories that we consider, there are buildings, for example. There are some Christians who worship in buildings which are very ornate and elaborate and expensive. And then there's coal, where we worship in something that looks like a warehouse from the outside. And some people in town do worship in a warehouse. Uh, Rick Boss and I, Rick goes to Cole here, we attended a christening at St. John's Catholic Church downtown a couple of months ago, and both of us were struck by the uh, immense contrast between that facility and this facility, the one that we're accustomed to worship in. St. John's is a 90-foot ceiling and elaborate artwork in the ceilings and many beautiful stained glass windows, and it's kind of a deep and long and dark and kind of a somber place in the evening especially. And coal, our building is much more, uh, uh, much simpler, much more informal. Uh, uh, preachers dress differently. Some wear robes, some wear uh, funny collars backwards, and uh, others of us just dress in a coat and tie when we teach. Uh, translations, there's a difference of opinion about translations. Some, uh, some believers insist that if the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. I won't uh, <laughs> use anything else. Uh, there's a great variety in the style of uh, music that is used and in the style of service that takes place. Uh, the style of some worship services is very formal and ritualistic and liturgical. Episcopalian churches are like this if you've ever been in one. Uh, ours tend to be more informal and flexible. Uh, charismatic Christians uh, exhibit a great deal more enthusiasm and exuberance and spontaneity than we do even. And if you've ever been to a black church, you realize that they can uh, get to cooking and really make a building rock. So there's this spectrum from the very formal to the very free-flowing and, uh, and spontaneous. Some churches emphasize the sacraments far more than others do. And for them, the Lord's table is a far more important regular ingredient of worship than it is for others. And this uh, poses a natural question, which of these styles of worship is preferable? Is one of these better than another? And which one should we prefer? Well, my thinking has undergone some uh, change on this subject this week, and I would like to look, have you look at a passage with me that's really helped my thinking. This is in Acts uh, 21. I'd like to uh, start at verse uh, 15. We pick up the account here, Luke's... In Luke's account, uh, Paul has been staying at Caesarea, which was a coastal town on the Mediterranean coast there in Palestine. Paul had been staying with uh, Philip, who was one of the early evangelists in the church. And now they are prepared to go to Jerusalem. Paul, as you remember from our study last week, had made a decision to go to Jerusalem, despite the fact that the Spirit, through the body there and through prophets in the church at Caesarea, had uh, told him not to go. He'd made his decision. And Luke tells us in verse 15 and 16 that after these days, that is the week or so they spent at Caesarea, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. 
And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasson of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. That verb that's translated, we got ready in verse 15, uh, can mean we simply packed our bags, or it can mean we loaded up the pack horses. It was about a 64-mile trip from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And Paul was traveling at this point with seven or eight companions, and so they had a sizable amount of luggage and gear, and so they used pack horses, evidently, to get this gear up to Jerusalem. When they got to Jerusalem, Luke tells us, they stayed at the home of a man by the name of Manasson, whose home country was Cyprus, the same region that Barnabas came from. Manasson is a Greek name you will recognize rather than a Hebrew name. So this Manasson evidently was a Hellenistic Jew. That is, he was a Jew who had adapted the, to the Greek culture and used the Greek language. Now, Paul describes him as a, or Luke describes him as a disciple of long standing. And what he means by that is that Manasson was an original disciple, that he was a disciple literally from the beginning. So this man probably met the Lord on the day of Pentecost and became a Christian at that point and was one of the earliest disciples, one of the earliest converts in the Christian church. Now Luke tells us in chapter 11 of this book that the gospel was first planted in Antioch by Christians from Cyprus, by Hellenistic Jews from Cyprus. And it's entirely possible that this Manasson was one of the men that took the gospel from Cyprus to Antioch and for the first time shared the gospel in that city with other Hellenistic Jews. And you remember that's where Paul got his start in ministry, and it's very possible that the relationship between Manasson and Paul went back 10 or 12 years, and that when Manasson heard that Paul, his old friend from Antioch, was going to be in Jerusalem, he was more than willing to play host for the time that Paul was in Jerusalem. So after Paul moves into Manasson's home, Luke goes on to tell us what happened next in verses 17 to 20. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. You'll recognize that there is no mention of apostles in this account. And that's evidently because the original apostolic band was now spread all over the Roman Empire engaged in uh, missionary activity. We know that Peter spent some time in what is now northern Turkey and eventually wound up in Rome. And we know that Thomas went to India to spread the gospel. So evidently the entire apostolic band was engaged in missionary activity at this point. And the church at Jerusalem was under the leadership of elders, which is an indication, by the way, of how early in church history the elder form of church government was established in the life of the church. Now, Paul uh, wanted to meet with the elders, first of all, to give to them a gift that he had been collecting. On his second and especially his third missionary journey, Paul had, in each of the Gentile churches that he had ministered to, had taken up a collection for the relief of the Christians, the Jewish Christians in Palestine, who were impoverished, many of them because of their associations with Christian faith were undergoing persecution. There was a famine that had devastated the land. And the Gentile Christians, under Paul's guidance, were uh, providing material and financial assistance to these Christians. So one of the things Paul wanted to do was to give this collection to the elders. Now, Luke doesn't mention that. He focuses instead on the fact that not only did Paul give this gift to the elders, he also held a, 
mini missions conference with them. Last time that he had been with these elders was in Acts 15, and that was six years prior to this. And in that intervening six years, Paul had been on two missionary journeys, and during that time he had planted the gospel in the European continent. He had been thrown in jail a number of times, had seen uh, cities erupt in riots due to the impact of the gospel, had seen earthquakes knock down jailhouses he'd been in. And through all of that, God had planted churches in every part of the Roman Empire. And as Paul related this story about the great things that God had done through his ministry, the elders, together with Paul, glorified God for the great things that had taken place. But a problem had arisen in Jerusalem, and the elders bring this problem to Paul's attention in verse uh, 20 through 22. They said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So the rumor had been circulating that in Paul's missionary travels, which he ministered both to Jews and to Gentiles, that he had been encouraging Jewish believers to abandon the law of Moses. Now, Paul never insisted that Gentiles obey the law of Moses, but likewise, he never encouraged Jews to abandon their ancestral traditions, their religious forms of worship. And yet the rumor had circulated there among the Christians in Jerusalem that Paul had done this, and the elders realized that when the word got out to the rest of the body that Paul was in town, this man who had encouraged apostasy from Moses, that a situation would arise which would be very ticklish and very likely explosive. So they wanted to defuse this situation, and they, have, they developed a plan which they proposed to Paul in verses 23 and 24. It says, therefore, that is in order to defuse this potentially ticklish situation, therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads. A number of fathers in this room would probably be willing to foot that bill for their sons. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. There were four Jewish Christians, members of the Christian church in Jerusalem, who had undertaken a vow now, what Luke means by this is uh, that they had undertaken a Nazarite vow. You are familiar with this because a number of the leading figures in Scripture had taken a Nazarite vow for life. Samson had taken a Nazarite vow for life. Samuel had done the same thing. And John the Baptist had also uh, taken a Nazarite vow for life. But it was also possible for Jews to take a temporary Nazarite vow, that is, for a period of 30 days or even as many as 60 or 100 days if they chose. These men were most likely uh, under a 30-day Nazarite vow. Uh, men would undertake a Nazarite vow if they had some special reason to be grateful to God for some act of goodness or some act of deliverance. And occasionally they would do this for some spiritual purpose in life, similar to Christians today who fast for spiritual reasons. 
But at any rate, uh, these men had undertaken this Nazarite vow, and it involved three things for these 30 days that they had to abstain from. First of all, they had to abstain from any kind of contact with dead bodies. That meant they couldn't go to funerals, for example, even if it involved the death of a father or mother or brother or sister. They secondly had to abstain from any uh, use of wine. In fact, they couldn't have anything to do with any of the fruit of the grape. I realize this would be a minor tragedy for Radar O'Reilly, who would have to abstain from great knee-high for a month. And then the third thing that they would have to do was uh, not allow their hair to be cut. They had to go 30 days without a haircut. I noticed Gary Wershing, my barber in town, he probably wouldn't be too happy for this uh, to catch on here in our church, in our community. But those were the three conditions. They had to abstain from dead bodies, any kind of contact with dead bodies, abstain from wine, and not cut their hair. And then when the time of the vow was finished, after 30 days, they had a series of sacrifices that they would offer in the temple, and they would have their hair cut, and then the hair would be thrown into the fire on the altar, and that would signal the completion of the vow, and they could return to to normal life. Now, the elders, uh, by the way, the details of this are in number six, so this is part of the ceremonial law that Moses gave to the Jews. Now, what the elders asked Paul to do was two things. First of all, they asked him to participate in this Nazarite vow himself. He says, purify yourself along with them. So undertake this Nazarite vow yourself. And secondly, we ask you to pay the expenses of these four men who themselves have taken this Nazarite vow. Now, the expense involved in this vow was had to do with the sacrifices. Uh, two yearling lambs had to be offered and one ram. I checked with a farmer friend of mine yesterday and told me that in today's dollars, it would cost about $350 to complete a Nazarite vow for all five people, about $70 a person. So that wasn't, uh, wasn't pocket money. So they were asking Paul to make a significant commitment of his own resources uh, to demonstrate to the Jewish community in Jerusalem that he himself was a good Jewish boy, that uh, he himself still adhered to the law of Moses, obeyed it himself, and encouraged other Jewish Christians to do the same. And this would be a public witness to his support of the Jewish law. Now, the interesting thing to me is verse 25 in this context. They ask him to participate in this Nazarite vow in verse 23 and 24, and then they add this in verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, you notice verse 20 refers to the Jews who have believed. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Now, the thing that came to my mind as I read this is, what does this have to do with anything? Discussing Nazarite vows, and suddenly the elders drag this discussion of Gentiles abstaining from meat sacrificed to idols into the discussion. There seems to be no connection. But this verse might be familiar to you, and if it is, it's because we've already encountered it twice in the book of Acts back in chapter 15. This verse and these restrictions were a part of the decision that the apostles and elders had made in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. The issue that had been discussed in that council, as you remember, was whether or not Gentiles had to obey the law of Moses. There were many Pharisees who had become Christians, the same Pharisees who had resisted the Lord in his ministry. Many of these men had become believers after Pentecost, and they now felt very strongly that Gentiles, in order to become good Christians, ought first of all to become good Jews. They ought to circumcise their children and undertake all of the provisions of the Jewish ceremonial law. 
Now, the elders and the apostles realized that the moral law of Moses, that is the Ten Commandments, that was binding on all believers everywhere. But they determined that the ceremonial law, the law of sacrifices and tithes and offerings and festivals and vows and so on, that uh, that part, the ceremonial part of the law of Moses, was not uh, something that ought to be obligatory for Gentiles, that they were under no obligation to undertake those, uh, those regulations. And this freed the gospel then. It's a very important landmark decision in the history of the gospel because it freed it from its connections to Jewish culture, made it possible for the gospel to go to every corner of the Roman and Gentile world without any Jewish cultural trapping. So it was an important day in the history of the church. But what the uh, apostles and elders did do is they asked the Gentiles to abstain from four things, not because it was necessary for their relationship to God, but because these things were necessary for their relationship to other Jewish Christians. Now, the four things that they asked the Gentiles to abstain from are what the elders refer to here. They first of all asked Gentiles to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, now, to a Jew, to have anything to do with meat that had been offered to an idol would be offensive to his conscience. And in pagan cities, uh, they had a sacrificial system, just as the Jews did, that involved burnt offerings and so on. And not all of the meat was used in the burnt offering in these pagan sacrifices. Some of it was given back to the worshiper to eat at home with his family and friends. And what was left over from that was sold in the public meat markets. And you could often get a prime cut of beef for a pretty good price if you shopped at one of these meat markets that was serviced by a pagan temple. Um, but the Jews found it very offensive to eat this kind of meat. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 8 that since there is no such thing as an idol, no false gods exist, then there's no problem for Christians to eat this kind of meat. But it was offensive to Jews. And so the elders asked the Gentiles, when you have a Jewish family into your home for dinner, don't buy the meat that you serve them at the public meat market because it would be offensive to your Jewish brethren. And then they asked them to abstain from blood and from what is strangled. Now, it was very important to Jews how their meat was prepared according to the Levitical system in the book of Leviticus. The blood had to be properly drained from meat before they would, uh, would touch it. The throat had to be cut, the blood drained out in that way. Now, the Gentiles weren't nearly so particular about how their meat was prepared, uh, but it would be offensive to a Jew to eat meat that had not been properly drained. So the elders asked the Gentiles to, um, uh, when you have a Jewish family into your home, don't serve them meat that has not been properly drained. Don't serve them a rare or medium-rare steak. Be sure that it's medium-well or well-done for their sake. And then the last thing they asked them to do is abstain from fornication. And what they're referring to here is not sexual immorality in general, because that would have been wrong for anyone. But what they're referring to here is the uh, Levitical system of marriages or proscribed marriages that Moses laid down in Leviticus 18. Uh, Moses uh, said under God's direction that Jews were not to marry certain other Jews. That is, a niece could not marry her uncle, a nephew could not marry his aunt, uh, sisters could not marry brothers, uh, sons could not marry mothers, and so forth. Many of the same restrictions that we observe in our, in our legal system today. Uh, so what they asked the Gentiles to do then, for the sake of their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, is to refrain from contracting these kinds of marriage, which would be offensive in the sight of the Jews. Now, the reason for this clearly was simply to permit 
Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians to fellowship with one another. The elders uh, were saying to the Gentiles that these things are not necessary for you to gain favor with God, but they are necessary for you to engage in fellowship with Jews. So even though these are privileges you have and rights that you legitimately have as Christians, we ask you to give these up for the sake of your fellowship, the sake of your relationship with, with Jewish Christians. Well, now, why did the elders bring this aspect of that decision into the discussion at this point? Well, it's because they want to assure Paul that this is not something that they would ask Gentiles to do. Because the ceremonial law was not binding on Gentiles, they say, Paul, I wouldn't dream of asking a Gentile to do this, but because you are a Jew, we would like you to do this for the sake of your Jewish brothers and sisters in the city of Jerusalem. Now, Paul tells us, in, or Luke tells us in verse 26 what Paul's response was. He tells us that he took their counsel and did what they asked. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until a sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So the very next day, Paul went in and, and talked to the priests and let them know the day on which the Nazarite vow would be completed and set the wheels in motion for the sacrifices to be offered for himself and these other four believers. Now, some have accused Paul of making a second mistake here. They feel that not only did he make a mistake in ignoring the Spirit's direction in the early part of the chapter, but here he has compromised the purity and the freedom of the gospel and is simply knuckled under to the pressure of the Jewish leadership of the church. But I think the verse we just left at, verse 25, makes it very clear that the, the Jewish leaders were in no sense compromising the purity of the gospel. They were attaching no strings to the gospel that Paul was free to proclaim among the, Jew, uh, among the Gentiles. He was absolutely free to preach the gospel just as he always had. These provisions of the ceremonial law were in no sense to be considered binding upon uh, Gentiles. And for that reason, I believe, Paul was able to go along with their suggestion and participate in this form of worship which was uniquely Jewish in nature. Now, he knew that these four men were genuine believers in Christ, were disciples of his, were depending daily upon Jesus and his strength and power. So he knew that these men were not uh, undertaking this vow in order to gain status before God. He knew that they realized they had already been granted all the status before God they could ever have because of their relationship with Jesus. So this vow was simply a way for them to express to God their faith and their gratitude. It was a uniquely Jewish way of expressing to God gratitude for the grace they had already received in Christ. And so for that reason, Paul had no trouble going along with this and participating in this form of worship himself. Now, I think this is where the rubber meets the road for us, is what we need to learn to do is what Paul, I believe, did in this, in this instance, and that is Paul had learned to distinguish between form and substance in worship. That Paul recognized as long as the, the substance was present, then the form that worship took was a matter of uh, moral neutrality as far as he was concerned. The specific form that worship took, if it was genuine worship, was a matter of indifference to Paul. And so it was perfectly possible for him to worship in a uniquely Jewish way because he recognized that substance 
was present. And he had learned to make that distinction between simply what was form and appearance and what was substance and reality. Now, it would be just like a good physician would, be very, would have very little concern for the kind of clothes that his patient is wearing. His concern is whether the patient is breathing. If the patient is alive and healthy and well, then it's a matter of indifference to the physician what kind of clothes his patient is wearing. Now, I think what's happened to us who are used to a more informal style of worship is that when we, are, when we encounter a more liturgical or more formal kind of worship style is that uh, our resistance to that, I think, is more uh, due to the fact, is not due so much to the fact that we are reacting to the form that we encounter, but to our awareness of a lack of substance, a lack of life, a lack of vitality. And that's what bothers us, not so much the form that worship takes place. And if that's the case in a more liturgical situation where there is an absence of substance, it's a bit like going to a funeral where you have an open casket and the deceased is uh, decked out in probably the finest and most expensive piece of clothing in his wardrobe, and yet it's, it's on a corpse. There's no life there. It's, uh, it's, it's death, and it's the absence of life that we react to. But I think what we have to realize, on the other hand, is that simply changing the form of worship to something that's more informal and casual is no guarantee of substance. It's no guarantee of life and vitality in worship. It would be just as possible, although I've never seen this done, it would be just as possible to attend a funeral where the deceased was decked out in a Hawaiian shirt and Bermuda shorts and thongs. Now, he would be dressed more casually, but he would still be dead. And so what Paul had learned to do was to recognize that the important thing is life and vitality and not form and that the clothes that the patient wears matter of indifference as long as the patient is healthy and alive. Now, this has great implications, by the way, for, the, uh, for missions outreach. One of the great advances in missions thinking that is taking place now is that Western missionaries are really realizing more and more that it's important for them to move into cultures which are different than Western cultures and incarnate the gospel in that culture instead of westernizing that culture, allow that culture to remain the same, even adopt some of the forms of worship, changing the substance, changing the content, but adopting some of the same forms that are used in other cultures. I'm aware of one man who has a very successful Bible teaching ministry in Cairo. And one of the things I believe that's made his ministry a success is that he adopts many of the forms of worship that are used in the mosques. His ministry is with Arab Christians there. He uses the same style of teaching that is used in the mosque, sing-song, a lot of repetition. But he teaches the scriptures instead of the Koran. He uses the same style of prayer. It's a matter of indifference to him whether people pray on their feet or on their knees. That's not the important thing, and he realizes that. So he adapts to that form of, of prayer. They use the same kind of music in their worship service that are found in the mosques. They segregate the men from the women in order not to be offensive to the, to the Arab culture. And in that, he is able to carry on what is a genuinely successful and spirit-filled ministry. He's changed the content and the substance, but he's adapted some of the forms. Now that, I believe, is the genius of what Paul has done here. That he had the freedom to adapt himself to the form of worship in which he found himself and to uh, participate fully in that kind of a worship. 
Now, Jesus was saying the same thing to the Samaritan woman in John 4. You remember that she comes to him, or in the course of their conversation, she says, Look, Lord, we Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. Which is the right place to worship? The Lord's response to her was that the hour is coming, and now is, when those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, what was he saying to her? Well, he was saying to her that where you worship is not important. It's not nearly as important as the way in which you worship. If you worship in spirit and in truth, your worship is acceptable to the Father because that's the kind of worshipers that the Father is looking for. So Jesus says if you worship in spirit, that is, if your human spirit is is open and responsive and receptive to God, And if you worship in truth, that is, if you worship with a commitment to believe the truth and to obey the truth and to live it out in your life, then your worship is acceptable to God, regardless of the form that it takes. Now, if we take this concept and apply it to some of the situations I mentioned earlier, you can see how liberating this is for our our viewpoint in terms of, of forms of worship. Let's take buildings, for example. The key issue in terms of worship that takes place in a building is not the kind of building in which it takes place. It can be made out of uh, crystal or it can be made out of brick. But the key thing is whether the people inside are worshiping in spirit and in truth. If they are worshiping with receptive spirits and a commitment to truth, their worship is is acceptable before God. Uh, We have some close friends who um, had some difficulties with their first pregnancy. They were threatening a miscarriage. And they spent many hours in St. John's, a Catholic church downtown, praying for God to protect the life of their unborn child. Did they, and they worshipped in spirit and truth, I'm convinced. And God answered their prayer and protected the life of that child. Now, was that acceptable worship to God? It was, because it was carried out in spirit and in truth. Uh, we can apply this to music. This is a very controversial uh, subject among Christians. Uh, but the same applies to music. Uh, If music is played and is sung with a heart that is responsive and open to God and a heart that is committed to the truth, then that music is acceptable as an expression of worship to God, even though it may not be particularly appealing to us. I am sure that the kind of music that I worship to best is probably different than the kind of music that you worship to best. It's almost impossible to find one form of Christian music Uh, which is equally attractive and appealing to all Christians. But that's not the point. The point is, is when music is sung and played, is it done with a a spirit which is responsive to God and a commitment to truth? And if it is, then what kind of instruments are used, whether or not an organ is used or an electric guitar, is of secondary significance. That's a matter of form and not substance. We take the style of service uh, that takes place in churches. Some churches, as I mentioned, are very liturgical. In style, One of my favorite expositors of Scripture is a man by the name of John Stott. Some of you have probably read his works or have been familiar with his ministry. He's an outstanding teacher of Scripture and understands the freedom and the grace of the gospel as clearly and teaches it as clearly as anyone I know. Not a legalistic bone in his body. And yet, for all of his adult life, he taught the Scriptures at an Anglican church in London. Anglican churches are very liturgical and uh, uh, very formal in their worship. 
And yet John Stott and his parishioners uh, worshipped week in and week out in spirit and in truth. And that was acceptable worship in the sight of the Father. Now, what this suggests to me is a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I think we ought to uh, develop as a response to Paul's example here a greater tolerance for other forms of worship and other traditions of worship. Uh, be far less judgmental and critical of the way other Christians express their worship to the Father. I think a second thing that we ought to do in response to Paul's example is to adapt ourselves to the kind of worship we find ourselves in. If we are visiting a Lutheran church, let's worship in Lutheran style, in spirit and in truth. And I think a third thing that Paul's example and Jesus' teaching makes clear is that worship is not something that's a function of time and place and geography. A genuine worship can be carried out uh, anywhere, at any time, and at any place. And this suggests to me clearly that worship can take place in this room on Sunday morning, but this is not the only place in which our worship of the Father can take place. If we worship him, if we walk as people whose spirits are alive and open to him, and if we walk as people who are committed to believe the truth and live it out, then we can worship him at any place and at any time. We can worship him in the shower on Monday morning as we prepare for a week of work. And we can worship him as we relax over a cup of coffee. And we can worship him in a growth group in a private home. No restriction in the places and times that we can worship. And that's my prayer for us as a people that we will become, in response to Paul's example, far more tolerant of others, far more able to adapt to other forms of worship, and that most of all, that we will be people who will be marked week in and week out and day in and day out as those who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Let's uh, stand and pray together and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we do thank you that you have permitted such a great variety of forms of worship in your body, that you delight in any worship and any style that's offered to you in spirit and in truth. Make us this kind of a people who genuinely do acknowledge your greatness and your goodness and your grace and do so with a, with a spirit that's open to you, receptive, eager to learn from you and receive from you, and a commitment to be people who live out your truth in a, in a dark and dying world. We thank you for your grace to accomplish this in life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.